Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. If you're just tuning in, this is part two of a series with Dr. Alfredo Ortiz Aragon. Alfredo is an action researcher and associate professor in the PhD program at the Dreben School of Education at the University of the Incarnate Word in San Antonio, Texas. In part one, we got to know a little bit about Alfredo's path to action research and discussed some pressing issues in the field. In this episode, Adam and Joe talk about Ernie Stringer and Alfredo's new edition of the seminal book, Action Research. Now, on to your hosts. All right, well, let's, let's move into talking about this book a little bit. So when uh, Joe and I were talking before the podcast, one of the things that I was thinking out loud with him was like, man, you know, when I first met Alfredo, uh, you know, again, you were my professor back at the, what's now the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. And, you know, that was 2009, 2010, 2011. You were still just wrapping up your PhD at that point. And now, I mean, fast forward, arguably less than 10 years later, here you are like co-authoring this pretty important book in the field. Um, it's really impressive, if you ask me. Can you talk a little bit about the book? you know, broad strokes and what that process was like partnering with um, Ernie and, and collaborating on such a, a monumental textbook? I'd like to give a little bit of a background, like even just as you said that, Adam, that when we met, I was just starting up kind of my PhD process. And obviously you saw me go through further, but I was really transitioning from what I used to refer to myself as a pure practitioner into an action research. And I know that you guys asked that question earlier, but I didn't I think I should say a little bit more about how I even got here over those last 10 years and why I kept kind of stubbornly trying to develop my own ideas as I become more and more, hopefully, of a hybrid between an academic and a practitioner. You know, in my PhD process was really transformative for me. I went to school in European style, whereby it's considered a research intensive degree, and I was expected to do a year's worth of field work. And so I did three action research projects in the field, two of them in Peru and one of them in, in Ecuador. And something really important happened to me that was, was in, uh, maybe emblematic of what I'm talking about when I say that I went through a transformative process. So I, we were experimenting with methodology. My whole PhD was intended to use action research to discover what is meaningful methodology and meaningful methodology that is actually capable of resonating with people and capable of influencing complex systems. So I won't go into detail there, but it was tied to complexity theory. And so we created three research action research projects with three local organizations who wanted to go through an organizational change process of some kind. We developed research questions pertinent to the project, to them, for each one of them. And of course, I had broader questions that I cared about as well that I was trying to harvest through, through my PhD process. And as we experimented with methodology and tried different things out and kind of saw how they generated learning, how they affected complexity, et cetera, I was taking all these notes and trying to pay attention. I, had, I was lucky to have co-researchers in, in all of my projects. 
And then I came back home after doing a lot of work and I said, okay, well now it's time to write up my research, right? Because someone told me that you go do field work and then you write up your research as if they're such different phases. And I picked up my notebooks and this, I had done like 20 some workshops and it was a long process. And I was like, shit, now I understand the, the movie, The Shining. Like my notes were so useless. It, it was as if I had been writing all work and no play makes Jack a very dull boy. And I was like, I've got no data. I was just, I've got no data. I just spent this much time. I know I contributed some good things, but I luckily, uh, and again, this shows how ill-prepared I was for my PhD because I was a practitioner and did not really understand the research world very well. Fortunately, one of my co-researchers had had a recorder with him and he insisted on us using it all the time. And I then bought one and I had recorded everything. So I had data, but I had to go back and re-listen to everything and start transcribing so many things because I didn't have any notes. And when I listened to the recordings, I heard storylines that I was not even aware of that were occurring mm. when I was there live. I heard little nuances, conflicts, challenges, people seating, people pushing back. I heard continual commentary on some things repeating over and over again, realizing that it was an issue. I was able to hear that there was an entirely different world going on than I was aware of by just watching it and participating in it but also thanks to some of the literature that I was able to read that the change process itself was a conversation. It was those storylines. It's what pe it's how people are interacting differently and choosing to take action and take up new conversations in, in different ways as they encounter their realities, as they debate, as they figure things out together. And so I realized that my whole career had been focused on producing outputs, matrices, reports, plans, not realizing that those are just props in the drama. Those are just tools that may or may not be an indicator of deep, meaningful conversation. And so thanks to that accident of being a terrible note taker, and by the way, I'm a very good note taker now. You don't have to learn that lesson more than once. I was able to discover that the, the whole purpose of being a facilitator was to pay deep attention to the storylines that are emerging and not paying so much attention to whether or not I'm faithfully implementing my methodology. And so that was occurring in me as I'm teaching you and I'm testing ideas out and I'm starting to realize, oh, okay, slow down with the fire hose of information through PowerPoint and find a way to make this way more experiential and to get everyone involved in figuring out what is it that we're talking about? What do we care about? And where should we go next? And I don't do that by any means perfectly, but that's kind of how I be went from being a pure practitioner into becoming more of an action researcher and re-understanding my role. And then that has taken me down a pathway of wanting to continue to figure out how I can take advantage of and better understand this whole set of ideas called action research better and better to become more transformative processes as I move forward. And it's a learning journey because, you know, even after all these years, I'm still a beginner on 80% of these things. I'm just a little more audacious than other people. And I'm writing it down and I'm declaring it as I go. And so, so that's, that's how I got to this book. I really enjoyed hearing this narrative. It was really helpful to understand how you position yourself and the learning that you went through. And I'm curious how you've entered this world of action research as a field, right? Because one of the things about our podcast is is that like action research is, is a field and a group community of practitioners, scholars, scholar practitioners. And so I'm curious what the next step is in terms of how you got connected with Ernie and what the community was like as you entered this and then these different, you're working in multiple countries, you have roots in the US, you had a European style education, you're doing your, a lot of work in Latin America. 
So how did that segue into this work and your entree into university life? I knew that I was onto something through my PhD and, and that I wanted to make this my field. I teach in an education school. Other people teach in a sociology school and you know they call themselves sociologists or they call themselves engineers or whatever the school is that, or discipline they belong to. I don't believe I belong to a discipline. I, I, I belong to a discipline of epistemology, methodology, and specifically I've chosen to dedicate my career, at least for now, to exploring action research. And so to do so, I just knew that I had to stay active. So I maintained active relationships with people at my former university, IDS. I was fortunate to be invited in to be an associate editor of the Action Research Journal, Mm -hmm. headed by Hillary Bradbury, probably six or seven years ago, Kent Glenzer and I came in together. He was the one that was invited. And he said, well... I'm kind of interested, but I'm only going to go in if I can bring this guy with me. And that that was this guy. (laughs) So we both came in together. And uh, that led me to meet Mary Bryden Miller, who is Adam's PhD supervisor. And we hit it off and we've done a lot of work together and we continue to work together. Victor Friedman, Hillary Bradbury, the editor, we just continued. It's a space for continuing to learn. And I take on projects. I helped Hillary and a, a bunch of other people edit the 2015 Handbook of Action Research. And I'm now involved in the, in the 2021 Handbook of Participatory Research that's going to be coming out next year from SAGE, headed by Danny Burns, uh, Joe Rowland, Sonia Spina, and some, headed out of IDS. So I really just have become aware that my ability to continue learning is highly dependent on maintaining connections with other seekers who are trying to use methodology creatively and transformatively. And sometimes those people are in the spaces where you work. For sure, I have some people like that in my university. But oftentimes, there are a few people who are a little bit crazy like me in other spaces. And you have to find a way to keep those relationships up if you want to keep learning. Oh, to answer your question, <laughs> that's how I met Ernie Stringer. So Mary Bride Miller introduced me to, to Ernie Stringer. They've been friends for years. And we just kind of hit it off. And a year later, second time around, he said, hey, you know, I wouldn't mind having a co-author for edition of the book. Uh, and would you be interested? And it was funny. We had just we were just hanging out. So I hang out with Mary a lot when I'm there and with her friends and a few other people. And we were at a dinner and just having fun. And all of a sudden I notice that I'm answering a lot of serious questions of Ernie's. And then I, it becomes clear to me that I'm in the middle of an interview of some kind. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so and I'd kind of been warned that he may be up to something by Mary. Mm-hmm. But. It was such an interesting, all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay, there are going to be right and wrong answers to anything I say for the next few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then fast forward and here you are co-authoring. Yeah, it was great yeah. working with Ernie. Um, sometimes he'd be like, oh, wow, I really wish you weren't causing me so much work. And other times he'd be like, ah, oh, you're going a little too crazy on these ideas. Let's go ahead and stick to what we have. I think that'll people understand it better or or the audiences we have will, will understand it better. The language you're using may not be great, you know, stuff like that. But it was, I will say in retrospect, it was a pleasure and it was a relatively easy person to work with because uh, he gave a lot, uh, gave in a lot and allowed me in to what he could have otherwise said, hey, I'm just asking for help on the margins. He didn't do that. He was, he was very generous. So I'm, I'm very appreciative to having worked with him. And I, I learned a ton. Half of my learning from uh, on action research has been in these kinds of relationships, like with Mary and others. You know, Mary's is a lot younger, but we need to bring in intergenerational relationships in these projects to transfer knowledge and to learn together because there's a lot of the pioneers of action research don't necessarily have connections to the, to the newest generation. 
I'd like to dive in a little bit more into some of the concepts that are in the book, right? Like the purpose of this podcast, or at least one of them is to be a resource, right? A tool, um, a passage of knowledge for people who are interested in, in action research. And I think we've been dancing around it a little bit. Um, in doing so, Ortiz, I'd like to, I'm going to steal a page out of your book. I'd like to make this about me while we do that. So, so here's what I propose, Ortiz. I have a couple motives here. One, I'd like to see if I'm grasping some of these concepts that you've highlighted in your book. Contextualize them, right? It's, it's difficult to understand them without having some sort of context behind it. So it'd be great if we could somehow interweave not only like talking about some of these ideas, but then perhaps incorporate what this looks like for you in the field as an active action researcher, right? So and I understand that involves introducing perhaps some of the, the studies that you've got going on in the field or some of the work that you've got going on in the field. So I, I think there's a way that we can navigate both. Should we give it a shot? Yeah, let's do it. So in first making this about me, right? And going through the chapter, there's obviously a lot that we can discuss in this book, right? So let's kind of stick with sort of this idea of what is action research, right? But as I understood it, there are three central principles that distinguish action research from other approaches to inquiry, as stated in your book, right? One being learning through and for action, two being acting informed by learning, and three being collaborating in participative research processes. How am I doing so far, Tease? Yeah, I, I call that third one participation of those who know. Participation of those who know. Okay, noted. And I'm going to cheat a little bit because there were a couple of quotes that I wanted to pull out um, that, that stuck out to me to help understand these, these ideas, these principles. So in learning through and for action, right? To me, this kind of highlights the importance and utility of the idea of action, right? But that, I think, deserves a breakdown. And you write that the actions emerging within the research process provide the primary source of knowledge that fuels the main purposes of action research. Thinking, reflecting, and analysis alone will not provide the means to achieve the ultimate ends of an action research process. And then I understand it that breaking it down one step further, there's two principles within that idea, right? One is that if you want to truly understand something, try to change it, right? You quote Kurt Lewin in that. And to me, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially if you're trying to change the paradigm within academia, I think to me it would resonate to more seasoned scholars who perhaps could use a new way of looking at the world. And, and then the second principle in such is that to utilize knowledge we are understanding about an issue in pursuit of worthwhile practical purposes, right? So it's not just about understanding things, but it's also about seeking out this sort of purpose within that, right? Or some sort of like improved situation. And within that, that encompasses this idea of learning through and, and for action, illuminating this idea of action. Yeah. The reason, uh, a new way of explaining it we're not the first to talk about these things. And so, but we, we came up with this way of reframing the basic understanding of action research in part because of my frustration, Ernie's frustration way back when, and 
uh, and many other people's frustrations where you get excited about action research. It makes enough sense to you to take it up as part of your, your PhD, for example. Yet every time someone asks you to explain it, even when you get better at it, they still don't understand you because it just takes too much explanation to really point out what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it this way. And so I look at most of the books and I look at the cycles and there, there's great stuff in all the books, but very few just come right out and say, really, what is it that we're trying to do differently? And so that's kind of where that, that way of framing it came from. I'll just point out to a little bit of the origins of the, those three ideas. The idea of learning for and through action. So the for action comes from a lot of places, but the big idea is obviously that we don't believe so much in the idea of research for research purposes. We want to have in mind what it's going to be used for and generate research in a way that increases the chances that it is going to be used. And so that's just a big idea. But the, but there's some really cool smaller ideas that we can discuss some other time, like John Heron's knowledge model, which basically says that if you look closely at human beings and the types of knowledge we generate, there's experiential knowledge, right? Which just is every day, it's people living. And experiential knowledge, babies have it. You know, everyone has it. It's just life. It's living. And you don't even need language for it. It's how people, beings of any kind, come to know the world through their senses, basically. Uh, add one more layer to that, and that's presentational knowledge. And presentational knowledge is all the ways, essentially, we bring language in to start expressing how we're experiencing the world and what we're trying to do in the world. It could be as much as, as little as just talking to someone, or it could be a PowerPoint presentation. But it's taking what we experience to a slightly different level and allowing us to express and experience knowledge in a different way. Then on top of that is propositional knowledge. It, assertions that this is the case, something is the case, right? It's abstract knowledge. It's, it's all the theories and us looking back at our experience, looking back at the ways we've talked about our experience and presented it and kind of developing broader patterns and understandings. And so those are the first like three layers of knowledge and they're, they're interweaving. It's a basis. It's not, it's not linear, but it's a basis that goes up. And Heron's assertion, and, and then Heron and Reason uh, worked on it later, is that academia got stuck in the world of propositional knowledge. It got so infatuated with it and stopped there. But in fact, that's not the highest level of knowledge. The highest level of knowledge is practical knowledge. It's applying any of the three things we said before. And so the, the most incredible idea ever is 10 times more intelligent and complex when you try to apply it. That's where you encounter the real world again. And that's where you encounter factors that you don't control. So Heron is saying, in fact, not only are we making an ideal statement that, hey, research should be for something. Uh, action researchers believe that research should, should help in some way. Yes, I believe that too. He's saying the very purpose of human life is to take action. It is the main way we learn in the world. And so therefore, shouldn't it be our main research method? <laughs> like, why are we waiting to take action when in fact, that's the most human thing to do and it's the biggest potential source of knowledge? So there's all kinds of, of ways and different theorists that you can use to unpack it. But I think we need to do a better job of just explaining to people, we're trying to return to things that people already know and that are hardwired into us and that we've been taught to not do, uh, particularly in, in, in educational systems. So that's the idea of generating knowledge for action. The idea of generating knowledge through action, which is my biggest kind of research interest these days, is that 
if we live life through multiple ways, through family visits, through reading, through chopping wood, through going to community events, through cheering at a stadium, through having coffee with each other, if we're constantly taking action, and this is one of the smartest things that we're able to do for hum- you know, as humans, then shouldn't all of those be the primary sources of our research toolbox? And uh, how do we expand out our research toolbox to really incorporate the multiple ways humans already know how to live life? And so that's, that's the idea of research through action or learning through action. And that's all of these ideas are way more impressive to the academic world because they've been taught to think otherwise we've been taught to think otherwise. In the practitioner world, some of these things are less remarkable. Uh, and that's where the other side of the, of the equation comes, which is the idea of harvesting learning from the actions that we take and really reflecting on it and really paying more attention critically to what's going on around us and using that to inform our next steps. And that's a message that's more remarkable in the practitioner world. And that's where those skills, we all need those skills, but they're, they're going to be extra useful there. And then participation of those who know is just recognizing the fact that our knowledge is limited to whose voice is, is, is present and there are ethical, practical, and, and even strategic reasons for increasing participation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, it, it's really profound. And I'll, I'm just going to pull out a couple of quick lines from, that, from the book, I think, that really resonate with me as far as understanding it, right? Because it's easy, again, we're starting to get into that, that lofty category of like, this somehow this makes sense, but like, what does it mean, right? What does it look like in practice, right? Like, what does that mean for me as somebody who perhaps is considering that maybe there's a place for me in this field of action research? For example, right, you, you mentioned in, when, when discussing this idea of acting informed by learning, you and Ernie contend that, uh, quote, if practitioners are able to pay a little more attention to how things are actually happening, they can be more effective in their work. And by consciously taking an attitude of inquiry, they can engage their day, their day-to-day work more thoughtfully and achieve better outcome. Right. That, that to me was very straightforward, succinct. And like I think I grasped that idea and why you're you kind of made the shift towards how this relates to practitioners as much so as scholars. Yeah. And then with respect to um, this third principle as it relates to the collaboration within the participative research processes, which you said you call what again? Do you mind correcting me on that? Well, when I present it to people with the idea that a really simple model makes sense, I just say acting to learn, so taking action to learn, learning to act, harvesting learning from our actions and using it to feed back in, and participation of those who know. So, right. so it's a single sentence. Participation of those who know in acting to learn and learning to act in multiple cycles of activity can generate transformative outcomes for the people involved. Gotcha. And, and there's a couple of times that you address this idea that the people who are actively engaged in the on-the-ground challenges of any social context and the deep level of understanding that they have about their own situation, you refer to them as experts as it relates to their involvement, action research. And to me, that it's, it's very distinct from most trains of thought as it relates to you know, more, more traditional research methods. But like what you're saying is that somebody with that contextual understanding of a given situation or challenge, they're as much of, if not more so, and then know about the situation than any other outside researchers. So, so why aren't we leveraging that, right? Why aren't we 
why aren't we capitalizing and maximizing that so that everybody can can contribute to improving a given situation? Yeah, and if our goal is to is to contribute, help those actors in whatever it is that they're trying to improve, we're not going to help them by just researching them. I mean, we, we can help by helping them leverage that knowledge and experience that, that makes them experts, but help them pull out their expertise. I mean, that's that's where a lot of the connections are to adult adult learning, adult education uh, from, from the action research world is, um, yeah, people are experts in their own lives and they hold the solutions to understanding the problem uh, and, and to coming up with ways to change their own and other people's behaviors. And so if they hold the keys to that and are critical both to releasing, sharing the knowledge and coming up with solutions and implementing the solutions, then why are they not centrally involved in every step of the process? We won a pretty good sized grant for a pilot year of activities right before COVID hit, but we've made a lot of good adjustments, I think. Um, so we were funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to basically test out action research methods. Um, in So the project is called Action Research in Support of Community Health and Wellbeing. And what we're trying to do is figure out how can we, by introducing action research approaches, philosophy, and, and, and methods, how can we increase participation of key community actors in their own health and well-being efforts in leveraging their own knowledge and coming up with the solutions? And there's a lot of huge amounts of public health dollars going out in different types of interventions to in whether it's childhood obesity or diabetes or the whole range of different health initiatives. All we're trying to do is say, what happens actually when you invite more people in and use a responsible methodology to do so? How can we better explain the theory of learning behind it? Like when you get people involved, how does it change the knowledge dynamic? Like I shared earlier when I was talking about what I realized during my PhD process. So we're just trying to better learn how does action research work in practice actually? And how can we really see what the opportunities will be for expanding this kind of work and, uh, in San Antonio. And a couple examples of doing that. One is we're working with a group of parents, children with autism on, on different parts of the, uh, of the autism spectrum. And it's a digital storytelling project that is uh, getting, you know, asking people to share stories of their experiences and accessing services that are critical to the health and well-being of their kids and what's worked, what hasn't, and what can we learn by A, simply hearing people's stories, B, them hearing each other's stories and kind of building on them and kind of seeing common plight, different gaps that exist in services, et cetera. And then how can we use the stories to leverage, to use the evocative emotion and power of digital stories to show people what, these parents and their kids are really going through, how they're not being served in really important ways by the healthcare system, and how they are very much aware of what they need and need to be able to be addressed or, or, or offered a different type of service. And so so that's that's one example of what we're doing. We're, we're going slowly through telling stories, creating digital versions of them, and little by little, we hope to get to a point where they can, in their own voice, express 
the things they want to change, and we can try and help facilitate some of that uh, that process. That's one example. And then one other example is um, we're working with the City of San Antonio's Metro Health Healthy Neighborhoods Program. They've been working doing community health with community health worker model for, for quite a few years, and they're, they do a really good job of that. And what we're trying to add on is just how can we, they already do a lot of cool asset-based community development. They do really important, they, they use methodology in very creative ways. And we're just trying to bring in a couple things. One, a little bit more documentation, reflection and connections between the work that they do and the health outcomes that they seek, like trying to help tell that story better. And two, we are trying to test out ways to involve the community actors in their own processes in, in a different way. So an example of that is different groups that they have targeted called a REACH grant, a CDC Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Healthcare. I think it, I think that's what, what uh, REACH stands for. They are working with like seven different target groups, which include breastfeeding mothers, including Afri- African-American mothers who have recently given birth, formerly incarcerated, LGBTQ+, non-binary, a, a wide range of people who don't always have the best experiences with the healthcare system, and um, immigrants. There's like seven different groups that they're working with. An example of how to use action research that we're wanting to test out and we're starting to work on is what happens when you, sure, you may have a focus group and uh, or, or some session whereby people tell their stories. So let's assume that in this case, a group of LGBTQ self-identifying people told their stories in a focus group of their experiences with the healthcare system. And some of these experiences are not very good. A traditional way of doing things might be to then take that data, interpret it, create a report and say, these are the challenges. And that is probably useful. But another way of doing it would be to say, why don't we read these transcripts together? Why don't we create digital, why don't we create images from some of these stories, images that speak to how far people have to travel, that speak to questions that they're being asked that other people aren't being asked when when they encounter a doctor or a nurse, um, that speak to uh, just sometimes ignorance and sometimes rampant discrimination in, in, in the healthcare system. Why don't we create visuals, poems, diagrams, a whole series of things, posters, collages, that express these same experiences in 3D and allow story owners themselves to shout out, this is my experience, can you see it now? And then take those stories and have a conversation with future healthcare professionals that exist in my school, for example. Uh, We just had a really cool experience with this this last week uh, where we're starting to come into the health schools and say, hey, future health practitioners, we know you wanna do the right thing, but did you know about this? And presenting information to them in a way that's live from directly from the community actors' uh, mouths and where they can see it and then have them work together to rewrite the script. How can we take these stories and rewrite them into a positive form and then create educational materials perhaps for future schools or future health programs to use in their programs. Create uh, advocacy pamphlets for the community members themselves to say, no, I know better. I have some, I have different rights or I know I need to get together with others to demand my rights. And so those are some ways that we're trying to play with data that is really just another form of people's original stories 
turn the stories into a form that are more readable, understandable, and sometimes in some cases evocative, and see if that can increase the power and voice of people to help other people understand and change the way healthcare is being delivered. Those were really powerful and specific examples. Thank you for that. Eventually, because I think it's about time to wrap up because there's so much great stuff here. Um, But eventually I want to geek out with you about some of the philosophical things, because I know you made a point of having very clear and concise, you know, a three-step process to, to really make this clear to people. But there is a lot of rich theoretical, philosophical, and practical, you know, that highest end of, of knowledge is a background to everything that you're saying. And it'd be really fun to just geek out about that. I mean, thinking about experiential learning, thinking about Dewey and pragmatism in terms of learning theories and how that relates to action research, comparing that to Bandura's theory of learning and, and how action research intersects with these learning theories, as well as like Frarian uh, approaches to critical pedagogies. You know, there's so much there that you were mentioning that I was like, oh yeah, there's so many cool things going on uh, philosophically. Um, and I know that action researchers are focused, you know, they're practitioners and researchers. I also think that, as you mentioned, there's a spirit of creativity and in the best of cases, philosophy is a creative art as well. Yeah. Can I, can I say, say one tiny thing to that? Sure. Yes. And yes, I'd love to geek out with you on that. And this, this, just the second thing is, yeah, it's a personal mission, but the last two things you said that part of living a rich life is philosophy and art. And so part of it does involve, to me anyway, mm-hmm. trying to rediscover and unleash some of people's philosophy, cultural philosophy, and really using art as a way of helping us to bypass our normal frames of seeing the world and allowing us to see things in, in new ways. So you'll see a lot of uh, active Farian approaches, but and definitely artistic ways of doing things. Not because I'm naturally artistic or naturally philosophical, but because I realized that I need these tools to be able to really see things and even to have more healthy and healing processes that, that allow me to feel more connected to other other people. Yeah, awesome, absolutely, couldn't couldn't agree more. So, Adam, do you have any more follow-up questions about this topic? I'm sure, you know, Alfredo, if you're happy, if you're, you know, willing, we'd love to have you back to talk about some more things. But uh, as a podcast, we want to make sure that our listeners have a, you know, they're going to go for a jog and listen to this. So we want to make sure that they are able to finish it. <laughs> I would just say, I mean, I think the study that you're working on at the moment is fascinating. The project in San Antonio and... Um, I just think it's really important to have examples like that to share with the community of action researchers, right? Because oftentimes it's so hard to really get to the bottom of what's happening in the field. Yeah. And, you know, everything I shared is it's a version of things that other people have done or tried. And so mm-hmm. once you get these practical ideas of how you can do things with action research, then the hard part becomes, oh, action research is actually hard. It's slow. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's all the relationship developing and development and and trying to do things the right way. So so that's the real story. It's not being able to, to articulate what it is and have examples. Obviously, that's really important. I agree with you. Having the concrete examples is super important. The more interesting thing is telling the story of how long it takes, how hard it is, how you need multidisciplinary teams to make sense out of it and just not screw up too much as you're trying to, to do something useful. So I'm happy to share more about that as a co-learner. I think that's a pretty good closing argument. What do you think, Joseph? I think we're uh, we're doing great. I think we're good to call it for now, knowing that this is one of future iterations. 
as, as action researchers are want to do. We'll make multiple iterations of this. Any last thoughts, Ortiz, on your end before we sign off? Just uh, to reiterate that I think this is great what you're doing. You're generating knowledge, knowledge objects that we can interact with and listen to and learn from. And so there's so much advanced knowledge out there, just not enough people putting it out. And so I, I appreciate that you guys are doing this. I hope you keep it up. Thank you, Alfredo, for this really insightful and powerful discussion. Uh, it was really great to talk to you and, and to connect. You know, I know Adam was really thrilled to have you on. I want to send a special thanks to our expert production manager, Shika Dwakar, and our sound maestro, Vanessa Gold, who are PhD students at McGill, a wonderful team, make this podcast what it is. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Alfredo, for coming on, and uh, we'll be in touch. So, And uh, we look forward to continuing these iterative dialogues. Thanks, Alfredo. I'm still waiting for that signed copy of the book, The Action Research, <laughs> fifth edition. I'll co-author Ernie Stringer, Alfredo Ortiz. Go get it. All right. Yeah, it's in the mail. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast.